Hello, I'm Courtney Garrett, and this is the 101 Christianity Podcast. These messages accompany Discovering the Character of God, a 14-week Bible study I wrote on the attributes of God, which is available on Amazon. I pray this message will encourage you as you grow in your understanding of God's character. So today is the final attribute that we're going to be discussing, which is God's sovereignty. So um, it will wrap up the 12 that we have focused on. And I want to make clear that these attributes are not um, a comprehensive study. I, I hope this has kind of whetted your appetite a little bit for more. If you pick up any book on the attributes of God, you may see this list, you may see more. You may see chapters that focus on his infinitude and, and other aspects, the fact that he is, um, that he's good and he's faithful and all these things. What I have tried to do is give you what I feel like are the, the root attributes. Um, and there's so many other things that weave through the rest of the attributes. Uh, we've talked about infinitude almost every week, right? The fact that God is infinite. So that's an attribute that's, that's there, but it's something that is kind of a part of all the other ones. When we think about God's grace and his mercy and his uh, faithfulness and his goodness, some of those things, those, what, the way I view those things are manifestations of these attributes that we have talked about. And so um, I, just, I just want you all to keep digging in because the more that we know who God is, the more that we can see him in scripture and the more we can rely on him in our personal lives. So again, I hope this is just kind of a springboard for you all. Next week, what we're gonna do is I'm gonna teach some, but not, not a really long time uh, because I want you all to have extra time in your small groups to discuss the things that you have learned. And so we want you to go back through and look and see things that you have highlighted and starred or things that you're maybe you're thinking about a little differently than you did um, when we started. And I think we will all benefit from hearing from each other about how God has taught you. And so come ready to, to discuss those things that you have been impa impacted by in your study. Um, and I think it'll be a great time of encouragement. So don't, don't miss it. Um, okay, so today, God's sovereignty. It pulls together so many of his other attributes that this is kind of the big kahuna in, in, my, in my way of thinking about it. Because it pulls together God's justice and his righteousness, his immutability, his omniscience, his omnipotence, because he is our good, benevolent king. And a good king Cannot, he cannot be good and a perfect king if he doesn't have all those other attributes. So we talked last week about God's omniscience, the fact that he knows everything, and that is also the reason that he is our king. And it's amazing because in this attribute, I think so much about God's strength. He's our mighty king, but he is also, we talked about, our good shepherd. So he is strong, but he is tender, and there's that, there's that both and. He is the lion and he's the lamb. And so we, he's too good to kind of get our heads around, but he's, he's both this awesome God and both this tender redeemer friend. And so it's, it's all of those things. Um, <clears throat> I laugh because I said, we're not going to really wade into anything controversial, whatever. Well, and then I read like what I read, it wrote, and I was like, well, forget that. Okay, so we are going to touch on a few things that I feel like, um, not necessarily controversial, but things that people get kind of, 
kind of stuck on. And I am not going to act like I have all the answers, but what I'm going to try to do is give you all kind of a, a way of thinking about things. Um, I, I hope that is consistent with scripture. Um, I won't answer all your questions, um, but I think that hopefully this will be a, a way for you to understand some of those areas, perhaps in a more of a clear way. Um, but overall, what I want you to get from today is that God's sovereignty should provide you with more comfort than confusion. He, he, it should bring you so much comfort. It should not be something that causes you a great deal of confusion. My husband said that this week, and I'm like, I'm going to use that, honey. That's good. Um, but So if you struggle with this, if you struggle with God's sovereignty, I, it's okay because we, we affirm the Trinity, but do we totally get it? We affirm that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. We, we kind of get confused by that to a degree, but we affirm it, right? God's sovereignty is something that we can get confused by, but we can affirm. So don't feel like everything has to be tied up in a perfect little bow for you to, to totally say, I affirm that. Oh, yeah, I've got questions about it, but I totally affirm that. I affirm that God is sovereign. So I want you to also remember that almost every week I have quoted you the verse that I hope you will just have with you in your pocket, and that is Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 that God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than yours. And so when we get stuck, that's not like a get out of free jail card necessarily, but it is a, I don't, I don't totally get it, but his ways are different, his thoughts are different, he's perfect, I'm not. So it's very helpful. Let me give you another verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of, of this law. So he has hidden some things from us, and that's okay, but he's given us so much for us to go on, right? We, we, can, we can live lives fully dependent upon the things he has revealed to us. The, the one quote, too, that I think is so helpful that, that is in another week that I, that I mentioned is that A.W. Tozer said, it is never wise to deny what you cannot explain. So that's there again. I just want you to feel okay in that tension when you don't totally understand something. You can still affirm it. So today we are going to kind of follow a familiar outline that I've been doing kind of the last few weeks, which is we're going to touch on how we see God's sovereignty in the Old Testament we're going to touch on how we see God's sovereignty in the New Testament through the gospel, and then lastly, how we can experience God's sovereignty in our everyday lives. So first, how do we see God's sovereignty revealed in the Old Testament? Um, so many places, but I want to kind of hone in on um, one event, because I want us to see that God demonstrates this, this story that we're going to talk about. It demonstrates how he uses unlikely and even painful events to bring about his good and perfect will. Unlikely and painful. We have all had some unlikely and painful stuff, have we not? But God still is on the throne. Nothing changes that. So I don't know that we're supposed to have favorite stories in the Bible, um, but my favorite story in the Old Testament is the story of Joseph. And um, we're going to look at that today. So turn with me to Genesis 37. Now, as you're turning, just as a way of kind of introduction, just to kind of catch us up to who, you know, rem remembering who Joseph is. So Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, 
the 12 sons who go on to, to be in the 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. One of his sons is Joseph. And Jacob was renamed Israel. You remember how Abram got his new name, Abraham. Jacob got his new, new name, which was Israel. So here's Joseph. And Joseph is the favorite. And you all remember that. So let's just kind of read through in, in chapter 37. I'm going to read, us, uh, read through the first eight verses. Genesis 37.1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, meaning Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream I have dreamed. Behold, we were all binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheave arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheave. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So it's an interesting choice that Joseph made there. You know, he's already the favorite. And then he's like, hey, this is so weird. I had this dream and y'all were all worshiping me. I mean, that's not really a way to kind of earn some love, you know, from your brothers. Um, so Joseph did make maybe a great decision there. But even so, this is, this is you know, how, how it went that he told them. So, you know, you know the story to a degree from here, probably, that he, his brothers were like, we're going to kill him. We don't want to even see his face anymore. So they decide they're going to kill him. And Reuben, one of the brothers, intervenes and says, let's not kill him. Let's not kill him. Let's, let's sell him into slavery. He gets sold into slavery. They come back with um, trying to concoct a scheme to, so that the dad will think that he was, you know, eaten by an animal. He comes back with, a, with this coat and blood, you all know. So then from there, here, we, here goes Joseph down to Egypt, living with, with Pharaoh, and God's hand is on Joseph the whole time. He goes down there, and he all of a sudden earns Pharaoh's favor, and, and, and then Pharaoh becomes, he gets blessed just by association with Joseph, and so as we go from there, um, he is getting blessed. In the meantime, Potiphar, remember Pharaoh's wife thinks he's pretty cute tries to seduce him. She, he turns her away, and then he gets accused of rape, and then he gets thrown into prison. And while he's in prison, God still blesses him. He becomes like an overseer in the prison. And then from there, you remember, Pharaoh has these dreams. Nobody can interpret them, but God gives Joseph the ability to do it. And then great things happen for Joseph. He is promoted in such amazing ways that he is the second in command to Pharaoh. I mean, a very unlikely situation. He becomes a governor of them. So at that time, remember that Joseph's family in Canaan all of a sudden experienced this famine, which Joseph had already kind of predicted in a way with the famine that, with the dream that Pharaoh did not know what it meant. Joseph came in and told him what it was gonna mean. So here they come. Joseph comes face to face with his brothers for the first time, the ones that wanted to kill him, and they don't recognize him. And, and thus starts this whole uh, back and forth kind of dialogue with them, and they go back, and they're, 
try to get their dad and their brother to come, and this whole thing, all the while Joseph, Joseph knows that these, are, that, that, that these are his brothers, but they don't know that it's him. So flip over to, to Genesis 45, and I'm going to read a few verses here. Genesis 45, uh, I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me. This is when they have kind of, everything's kind of coming to a head. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and then you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Isn't that amazing? So you know how many times he says God, like four times, God did this, God did this, God did this. We see that Joseph is able to see the hand of God in this, what was very horrible and hard. He went through some terrible stuff. He was thrown into prison. He was wrongfully accused of rape. All of these things that he was, this, his brothers were lying. All of these things, they highlight the hand of God in the midst of bad decisions of other people, sinful decisions. Now flip over to Genesis 50, and let's just talk about how it ends. Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Oh, gets me every time. What you meant for, for bad, God meant for good. God is in the, in the business of redemption. And we see this so well here. Just like Job 42.2 reminds us that we cannot derail God's plan, that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. That means that your sin, my sin, the sins that other people commit against us, and the devil's schemes cannot derail God's plan. That should give you a lot of comfort. Yes, we have consequences we have, that we have to experience because of our own sin and what other people have, have sinned, the way that other people have sinned against us, but we cannot derail God's plan. I hope that that brings you comfort. It does me. God's sovereignty helps us see that we talked about this week that there is not a plan B. There's not a plan B. Carolyn Custis James in her book, When Life and Beliefs Collide, 
I highly recommend that book, When Life and Beliefs Collide. This is what she says. When we talk about kind of the whole, am I living plan B? Did I make a bad decision and now I'm off track and I'm kind of in this subpar life? She said, we can think somewhere along the line we zigged when we should have zagged. And now we're hopelessly stuck with plan B. But if God is sovereign, then plan B is a myth. No matter how dark things look to us or how big the mess we're in, we're in plan A. God's plan for us is intact, proceeding exactly as he intended, neither behind nor ahead, but right on schedule. Nothing can deter a sovereign God from accomplishing his purposes. There is deep mystery here, to be sure. God's sovereignty doesn't answer all of our questions, but our comfort rests not on sovereignty alone, but on the other aspects of God's character. For the king's character it will inevitably determine how he governs. Isn't that good? And listen to what she says. You know, our comfort doesn't rest in God's sovereignty alone, but on the other aspects of God's character. That's what the study's been all about. Trying to give us a comprehensive, to, the, to our best ability of, to, to understand, a comprehensive view of God. If we are unbalanced in our view of God, then we're not going to be able to rightly see our circumstances in light of a good, righteous, benevolent king. So how can we see God's sovereignty in light of the gospel? Secondly, last week we introduced this idea that the cross is, is and was a pre-planned rescue operation. It was pre-planned. God in advance planned that Jesus would come. Jesus did not hang on the cross as a result of the Romans and their, their, the rulers killing him, or of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, or the mob, or the devil winning. None of those things. He was there according to his father's plan and by his own choice, both of those things. We see the sovereign purpose of God and the heinous acts of men at the same time. And we see it especially when Peter says it in a single verse in this sermon at Pentecost, Acts 2.23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Y'all, we see it in one verse. Do you see that? God's hand, it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and he used, he used the heinous acts of men to accomplish his purpose. That's hard for us to get our heads around, right? But I'm sure glad that Jesus died for us. Where would we be if Jesus had not died for us? Jesus knew what the cross would mean for him, but he also spoke of it in terms of glory. It's not all about the suffering. In John 17, 1, he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, this is in the high priestly prayer of Jesus to the Father. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So in the cross, we see a combination of God's glory and his sovereignty. And that gives me so much hope, because in his goodness and love, God's plan includes pain and tragedy for Jesus and, and for us, too. Just like in the story of Joseph. This helps us to understand, too, that God governs our suffering. God is the governor of our suffering, just like he governed Jesus' suffering. 
You know, who of us would say about something painful that we've endured? I hear this all the time, and I know I've said it myself. I would never want to go back through that again. But I would never replace what I have now because of what I went through. Because of the intimacy that I have with the Lord, because I found him to be completely dependable, I had nothing but the Lord during that time. We don't want to think, we don't, we're not happy that we go through suffering, but we see that God can use it. We don't want to go back there, but we, what we, we, we want what we have now. How would we get what we have now had we not gone through what God had allowed? So that is the glory of God, to be able to say that we are better for it. More bound to Christ, more dependent upon him because of what he has allowed in our lives. Suffering is a mechanism that God uses to bring us to ourself. To, to, hey, that's interesting. To bring us to himself. We don't need to be brought anymore to ourselves. I have enough of me. Suffering is what God uses to bring us to himself. Listen, nobody wants to suffer. But suffering is not the worst thing that could happen to you. The worst thing that could happen to you and me is that we would miss out on a relationship with God. Suffering is not the worst thing. The worst thing is that we would miss out on what God has for us. So we take great hope in the cross because it's where our redemption took place and where the greatest suffering took place because we also share in the sufferings of Christ that we might also participate in his glory. 1 Peter 4.13 says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. David Wells um, said this. He said, to stand beneath the cross is to stand at the one place where the character of God burns brightest. It burns brightest there. And I know that you all know the hymn or have heard when I survey the wondrous cross, but I love this verse where it says, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Do you see the paradox there? Sorrow and love together. Thorny, a thorny crown. Have you ever thought about the irony of a thorny crown? Kings wear a crown. It's, it's royalty. Christ wore a thorny crown. They're suffering in his, the fact that he is our king, but there's suffering there. He's the suffering servant. So how do we rest in God's sovereignty in our everyday lives? We kind of come up against a couple of problems when we try to get our heads around how we can rest in God's sovereignty. The first one is the problem of God's sovereignty and, and our free will, right? If, if, uh, what is our role if everything is determined ahead of time? Are we puppets? Are we passive bystanders? Are we even victims? Um, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. But how do we balance the sovereignty of God and our responsibility? I'm going to give you um, an illustration that I hope will be helpful. It's not mine. I've heard it, but I don't, I don't know who. So. Sorry out there if you hear this and I have not attributed it to you, but I think it's really old. So imagine that you, that all of us are going to go on a trip to London. We're going to fly out of Intercontinental and we're going to fly into Heathrow in London. And um, we're going to go on one of those like luxury jetliners. Sometimes you see on TV, I don't know. They look really fab. So we're all going to go. And um, so the destination has been chosen. 
the path has been charted, and that's where we're going to go. That's where we're headed. The, it, it's, nothing can change that. So we're headed there. Now, while we are on this flight, we are free to move about the cabin. We, um, this is a really cool plane, so there's like a lounge. You could go have a latte or a glass of wine, or you can talk, you can watch a movie, you can sleep, you can read, you can do whatever you want to do. We're still bound for London, right? But there's freedom while we're on the plane. Do you see how both can coexist that way? That is how God's sovereignty is. Yes, the plan is, it's, it's already planned. God knows it. But we have freedom within those. We, can, we have freedom to make good decisions. We have freedom to make bad decisions. We have a lot of freedom there. But God has already planned the destination. Bill Bright, the uh, founder of Campus Crusade, now crew, says this, God has a set course for us that he has charted before the beginning of time. His master plan for history will be accomplished whether we choose to work with him or follow our own stubborn way. Although he allows us to choose and suffer the consequences of our choices, he never relinquishes control of the plans to accomplish his purposes. That's really reassuring. So the Bible teaches both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And I want to show it to you in a couple of verses that are right next to each other. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Now I want to ask you as I read this, which one, which one is highlighted in this verse? Divine sovereignty or, or man's responsibility? This is the verse, Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What do you see there? We see God's sovereignty in that. The next verse, verse 28, which is very familiar to you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What do you see there? You see man's responsibility. Guys, those verses are right next to each other. That's what, that's what, those are Jesus' words. The ten, there's tension here, right? And you've got to be comfortable with a little bit of tension. But we see both in Scripture. So that should give us comfort that God has a plan. Now, secondly, the, the other problem that we have is what about the pain that we experience in light of God's sovereignty? Why does God allow pain, death, and suffering if he could prevent it? I am for sure not going to pretend like I, I know all the answers. There are books and books. There are courses and seminaries. There's all kinds of things about this problem. The problem of pain is a big problem. But let me tell you what I think that I see in Scripture. We know that God governs our pain just like he did with Job. He sets parameters around our pain. He is always in control. He is not the cause of our pain that we suffer, but because he is always in control in his permissive will, he allows hard things to happen. God is always in control. He is not the causative agent, but he permits it. A.W. Tozier, I know I'm quoting a lot of people today, but I've needed to rely on a lot of smarter people than me this week. Um, A.W. Tozer says this, in, in his sovereign wisdom, God has permitted evil to exist in carefully restricted areas of his creation, a kind of fugitive outlaw whose activities are temporary and limited in scope. More than, more than that, no one knows at present, and more than that, no one needs to know. 
It's an interesting way of thinking about it. We know that it's there. We know he's in control. We know he's the governor of, of our situations. He sets parameters, but the rest is a mystery. That's where the tension is. And it's okay to just let it hang. Just let it hang and yet affirm the fact that God is always in control. This, this story kind of highlights that. Um, this is a story that's in a book that Tommy Nelson ten, um, wrote, and I think this is really helpful. Tommy Nelson is a pastor in Denton, um, at Denton Bible Church. He says, I heard a man tell of a son who was killed in a motorcycle accident. Somebody came up to my grieving friend and said, where was God when your son was killed? My friend, my friend looked at that person in the eye and said, he was in the same place he was when his son was killed. He was with my son, and he will use his death for his own purposes. My friend had an accurate and deep understanding that God has a plan in all things. Oh, that we could have that same perspective in the moment of awful, awful tragedy. We experienced this to a, a very much smaller degree when we were um, in the hospital with our six-week-old, our older son. Um, he was born with some breathing problems, and we couldn't get our heads around. And we, we were going to all these different places to try to figure out what the deal was. And um, they weren't sure about the diagnosis, but they were putting him through some different testing, and we were all thinking it was about his breathing, and it ended up being about his heart. But we didn't know that. So we went through, and we went to um, a, through a CT scan. And we were in the recovery area of the CT area, which is very low stress. It's just more like, hey, let's get you stable, and let's just get you out of here, because we were done with the testing. And all of a sudden, our little six-week-old started stopped breathing, and he st started turning blue. And, I mean, we were this close to leaving the hospital, so it's totally God's sovereignty and his goodness that we were still in the hospital. But he started, anyway, all of a sudden, it was just, like, on. Everybody was right there. They were intubating. We were rushed out to the, to the hallway, and we, I just collapsed, I mean, on the, you know, against the wall, like, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, you know, what's happening? We don't even know, and it was, it was awful. And, I mean, I... John and I were both just sitting there, crumpled up, and all of a sudden, this, this man came up to us, the chaplain at the hospital, and he said, can I pray with you? And I'm like, please, please pray, and I'll never forget what he prayed. He said, Father, you know the love of a parent because you have a son, you, you, have a son. you know what it's like to see your son suffer like, because he did that for you on the cross. And so, Lord, would you please be the perfect father to these parents right here? And it was so precious. I had never thought about it that way. I had never thought about God, the father, understanding perfectly the love of a parent. I had never understood the whole idea of God watching his son suffer like that. And it all just it blew my mind. Like, I felt so close to the Lord in that. And Jack totally ended up being okay. And we were, at that point, it was a, a simple what we thought was a, kind of a more minor situation turned into a full-blown heart surgery that saved his life. Um, but I just want you to know that God's not detached from our suffering. He's not. He knows the love that he has, that he has for the son. He has for his children, you and me. Um, I want to debunk as we close just a, a saying that you hear, and I just don't believe it, that people often say that God does not give you more than you can handle. Ladies, it's not true. It's not biblical. I've said it before, and I didn't understand what I was saying, but it's not true. Well-meaning people say that. And that is, that is from a verse that says that 
no temptation has seized you, but what is common to man, and he'll find a way of, of escape. And that's about sin. That's not about life. It's not. God gives us way more than we can handle, ladies, right? I want you to have freedom in saying that. Speak that into somebody else's life whenever you're going through a hard time and just say, I have so much more than I can handle, but God, but God, God is in control. I'm telling you, there's power in being so dependent and desperate on the Lord. If, if we could handle it ourselves, why would we ever need the Lord? Why? Oh, it's okay. You won't give me more than I can handle. Isn't that just dumb as you start to think about it? It's dumb. We can't handle it. So let's just say it. I can't handle this, but God can. He can. So our response to all this is to trust in him, to rest in his attributes, read his word, claim his promises, and hold to what 2 Corinthians 4, 8 tells us, that, that we are afflicted, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. I hope and I pray that God's sovereignty gives you so much more comfort than it confuses you. Because there's so much comfort for us if we just realize that God loves us and he's in control. He's on the throne. Nothing can change that. Let's trust him. Father, I thank you that you are in control. That although, Lord, we are so often perplexed, afflicted, persecuted, we're struck down, all those things. But, Lord, you are in control. And so we are so thankful for that. Lord, when we get confused about all these things, just help us to put that aside and just ask that your word become, become so real to us. That as we walk around in these lives where we often, often have more than what we can handle, that we would rest on your sufficiency and in all that you did for us, Lord. We love you, and we don't, we don't deserve your love, but you give us your love, and we see it so much as evidenced on the cross. Help us to cling to the cross, Lord. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about our resources, please visit 101christianity.com. And for more encouragement, you can follow along on Instagram at Courtney underscore Garrett underscore. Let's press on as we seek to know the truth and share the truth.